0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Another World Audiobooks. So glad to have you here. I want to give a big shout out as always to the wonderful patrons, to Mike, Corky, Etiosa, and to Renee. Thank you guys so much for support supporting the show. Go to AnotherworldAudiobooks.com if you want to learn how you can become a loyal citizen of Another World. And I want to give a huge shout out as well to Joe G. Joe sent me an email, very kind email. He says, Hello there. I'd like to start by saying that I really enjoy your audiobooks and your taste in the books you go for. So far, I've listened to The Hound of the Baskervilles and was shocked when I realized that you were at the beginning was the same guy who did the voice in the middle. Uh, I'm currently on both Tarzans alternating. That is impressive right there, going back and forth. I like it. Um, yeah, so I really just want to say thank you, Joe, for um, just uh, sending that email. Makes my day anytime I hear from a listener. And uh, he's just said he, he likes what uh, I do and wants to support initiatives like this as well as other people doing similar stuff. So uh, I, am, I reply to him and, and let him know that I let him know if I come across anybody else doing something similar. I honestly haven't really run into anyone doing something similar. I'm sure they're out there but and i'd love to connect with them so if any other listeners know of any uh similar podcasts or similar outfits that are doing similar stuff to what we're doing uh make sure to uh let me know and i'd love to point joe in that direction and so yeah <laughs> uh we'll help each other so thanks again joe thanks again patrons and uh let's get into it without further ado i give you the next chapter of the return of tarzan chapter 21 the castaways Clayton dreamed that he was drinking his fill of water, pure, delightful draughts of fresh water. With a start, he gained consciousness to find himself wet through by torrents of rain that were falling upon his body and his upturned face. A heavy tropical shower was beating down upon them. He opened his mouth and drank. Presently, he was so revived and strengthened that he was enabled to raise himself upon his hands. Across his legs lay Monsieur Thurin. A few feet aft, Jane Porter was huddled in a pitiful little heap in the bottom of the boat. She was quite still. Clayton knew that she was dead. After infinite labor, he released himself from Thurin's pinioning body and with renewed strength crawled toward the girl. He raised her hand from the rough boards of the boat's bottom. There might be life in that poor, starved frame even yet. He could not quite abandon all hope and so he seized a water-soaked rag and squeezed the precious drops between the swollen lips of the hideous thing that had but a few short days before glowed with the resplendent life of happy youth and glorious beauty. For some time there was no sign of returning animation, but at last his efforts were rewarded by a slight tremor of the half-closed lids. He chafed the thin hands and forced a few more drops of water into the parched throat— The girl opened her eyes, looking up at him for a long time before she could recall her surroundings. What? she whispered. Are we saved? It is raining, he explained. We may at least drink. Already it has revived us both. Monsieur Theron? she asked. He did not kill you? Is he dead? I do not know, replied Clayton if he lives and this rain revives him. But he stopped there, remembering too late that he must not add further to the horrors which the girl already had endured. But she guessed what he would have said. Where is he? she asked. Clayton nodded his head toward the prostrate form of the Russian. For a time, neither spoke. I will see if I can revive him, said Clayton at length. No, she whispered, "'extending a detaining hand toward him. "'Do not do that. "'He will kill you when the water has given him strength. "'If he is dying, let him die. "'Do not leave me alone in this boat with that beast.' "'Clayton hesitated. "'His honor demanded that he attempt to revive Thurin, "'and there was the possibility, too, that the Russian was beyond human aid. "'It was not dishonorable to hope so.' As he sat fighting out his battle, he presently raised his eyes from the body of the man, and as they passed above the gunwale of the boat, he staggered weakly to his feet with a little cry of joy. "'Land! Jane!' he almost shouted through his cracked lips. "'Thank God! Land!' The girl looked too, and there, not a hundred yards away, she saw a yellow beach and beyond the luxurious foliage of a tropical jungle. "'Now you may revive him.' said Jane Porter, for she too had been haunted by the pangs of conscience which had resulted from her decision to prevent Clayton from offering succour to their companion. It required the better part of half an hour before the Russian evinced sufficient symptoms of returning consciousness to his open eyes, and it was some time later before they could bring him to a realisation of their good fortune. By this time the boat was scraping gently upon the sandy bottom." Between the refreshing water that he had drunk and the stimulus of renewed hope, Clayton found strength to stagger through the shallow water to the shore with a line made fast to the boat's bow. This he fastened to a small tree, which grew at the top of a low bank, for the tide was at flood, and he feared that the boat might carry them all out to sea again with the ebb, since it was quite likely that it would be beyond his strength to get Jane Porter to the shore for several hours. Next he managed to stagger and crawl toward the nearby jungle— where he had seen evidences of profusion of tropical fruit. His former experience in the jungle of Tarzan of the Apes had taught him which of the many growing things were edible, and after nearly an hour of absence he returned to the beach with a little armful of food. The rain had ceased, and the hot sun was beating down so mercilessly upon her that Jane Porter insisted on making an immediate attempt to gain the land. Still further invigorated by the food Clayton had brought, The three were able to reach the half-shade of the small tree to which their boat was moored. Here, thoroughly exhausted, they threw themselves down to rest, sleeping until dark. For a month they lived upon the beach in comparative safety. As their strength returned, the two men constructed a rude shelter in the branches of a tree, high enough from the ground to ensure safety from the larger beasts of prey. By day they gathered fruits and trapped small rodents, At night they lay cowering within their frail shelter, while savage denizens of the jungle made hideous the hours of darkness. They slept upon litters of jungle grasses, and for covering at night Jane Porter had only an old Ulster that belonged to Clayton, the same garment that he had worn upon that memorable trip to the Wisconsin woods. Clayton had erected a frail partition of boughs to divide their arboreal shelter into two rooms— one for the girl, and the other for Monsieur Thurin and himself. From the first, the Russian had exhibited every trait of his true character— selfishness, boorishness, arrogance, cowardice, and lust. Twice had he and Clayton come to blows because of Thurin's attitude toward the girl. Clayton dared not leave her alone with him for an instant. The existence of the Englishman and his fiancée were one continual nightmare of horror— and yet they lived on in hope of ultimate rescue. Jane Porter's thoughts often reverted to her other experience on this savage shore. Ah, if the invincible forest god of that dead past were but with them now, no longer would there be aught to fear from prowling beasts or from the bestial Russian— She could not well refrain from comparing the scant protection afforded her by Clayton with what she might have expected had Tarzan of the Apes been, for a single instant, confronted by the sinister and menacing attitude of Monsieur Thurin. Once, when Clayton had gone to the little stream for water, and Thurin had spoken coarsely to her, she voiced her thoughts. "'It is well for you, Monsieur Thurin,' she said that the poor Monsieur Tarzan who was lost from the ship that brought you and Miss Strong to Cape Town is not here now. You knew the pig? asked Thurin with a sneer. I knew the man, she replied, the only real man, I think, that I have ever known. There was something in her tone of voice that led the Russian to attribute to her a deeper feeling for his enemy than friendship— and he grasped at the suggestion to be further revenged upon the man, whom he supposed dead by besmirching his memory to the girl. "'He was worse than a pig,' he cried. "'He was a poltroon and a coward. To save himself from the righteous wrath of the husband of a woman he had wronged, he perjured his soul in an attempt to place the blame entirely upon her. Not succeeding in this, he ran away from France to escape meeting the husband upon the field of honor. "'That is why he was on board the ship that bore Miss Strong and myself to Cape Town. "'I know whereof I speak, for the woman in this case is my sister. "'Something more I know that I have never told another. "'Your brave Monsieur Tarzan leaped overboard in an agony of fear "'because I recognized him, and insisted that he make reparation to me the following morning. "'We would have fought with knives in my stateroom.' "'Jane Porter laughed.' You do not for a moment imagine that one who has known both Monsieur Tarzan and you could ever believe such an impossible tale. Then why did he travel under an assumed name? asked Monsieur Theron. I do not believe you, she cried, but nevertheless the seed of suspicion was sown, for she knew that Hazel Strong had known her forest god only as John Caldwell of London. A scant five miles north of their rude shelter, all unknown to them, and practically as remote as those separated by thousands of miles of impenetrable jungle, lay the snug little cabin of Tarzan of the Apes. While farther up the coast, a few miles beyond the cabin, in crude but well-built shelters, lived a little party of eighteen souls, the occupants of three boats from the Lady Alice, from which Clayton's boat had become separated. Over a smooth sea, they had rowed to the mainland in less than three days. None of the horrors of shipwreck had been theirs, and though depressed by sorrow and suffering from the shock of catastrophe and unaccustomed hardships of their new existence, there was none much worse for the experience. All were buoyed by the hope that the fourth boat had been picked up, and that a thorough search of the coast would be quickly made. As all the firearms and ammunition on the yacht had been placed in Lord Tennington's boat, the party was well equipped for defense, and for hunting the larger game for food. Professor Archimedes Q. Porter was their only immediate anxiety. Fully assured in his own mind that his daughter had been picked up by a passing steamer, he gave over the last vestige of apprehension concerning her welfare— and devoted his giant intellect solely to the consideration of those momentous and abstruse scientific problems which he considered the only proper food for thought in one of his erudition. His mind appeared blank to the influence of all extraneous matters. "'Never,' said the exhausted Mr. Samuel T. Philander to Lord Tennington. "'Never has Professor Porter been more uh, difficult—I might say, impossible—' "'Why, only this morning, after I had been forced to relinquish my surveillance for a brief half-hour, he was entirely missing upon my return. And, bless me, sir, where do you imagine I discover him? A half-mile out in the ocean, sir, in one of the lifeboats, rowing away for dear life. I do not know how he attained even that magnificent distance from shore, for he had but a single oar, with which he was blissfully rowing about in circles.' "'When one of the sailors had taken me out to him in another boat, the professor became quite indignant at my suggestion that we return at once to land. "'Why, Mr. Philander,' he said, "'I am surprised that you, sir, a man of letters yourself, should have the temerity so to interrupt the progress of science.' I had about deduced from certain atmospheric phenomena, I have had under minute observation during the past several tropic nights an entirely new nebular hypothesis, which will unquestionably startle the scientific world. I wish to consult a very excellent monograph on Laplace's hypothesis, which I understand is in a certain private collection in New York City.' "'Your interference, Mr. Philander, will result in an irreparable delay, for I was just rowing over to obtain this pamphlet, and it was with the greatest difficulty that I persuaded him to return to shore without resorting to force,' concluded Mr. Philander. Miss Strong and her mother were very brave under the strain of almost constant apprehension of the attacks of savage beasts.' nor were they quite able to accept so readily as the others the theory that Jane, Clayton, and Monsieur Thurin had been picked up safely. Jane Porter's Esmeralda was in a constant state of tears at the cruel fate which had separated her from her poor little honey. Lord Tennington's great-hearted good nature never deserted him for a moment. He was still the jovial host, seeking always the comfort and pleasure of his guests. With the men of his yacht, he remained the just but firm commander. There was never any more question in the jungle than there had been on board the Lady Alice as to who was the final authority in all questions of importance, and in all emergencies requiring cool and intelligent leadership. Could this well-organized and comparatively secure party of castaways have seen the ragged, fear-haunted trio a few miles south of them They would scarcely have recognized in them the formerly immaculate members of the little company that had laughed and played upon the Lady Alice. Clayton and Monsieur Thuron were almost naked, so torn had their clothes been by the thorn bushes and tangled vegetation of the matted jungle through which they had been compelled to force their way in search of their ever more difficult food supply. Jane Porter had, of course, not been subjected to these strenuous expeditions, But her apparel was, nevertheless, in a sad state of disrepair. Clayton, for lack of any better occupation, had carefully saved the skin of every animal they had killed. By stretching them upon the stems of trees and diligently scraping them, he had managed to save them in a fair condition, and now that his clothes were threatening to cover his nakedness no longer, he commenced to fashion a rude garment of them, using a sharp thorn for a needle, and bits of tough grass and animal tendons in lieu of thread. The result, when completed, was a sleeveless garment which fell nearly to his knees. As it was made up of numerous small pelts of different species of rodents, it presented a rather strange and wonderful appearance, which, together with the vile stench which permeated it, rendered it anything other than a desirable addition to a wardrobe. But the time came when, for the sake of decency, he was compelled to don it, and even the misery of their condition could not prevent Jane Porter from laughing heartily at sight of him. Later, Thurin also found it necessary to construct a similar primitive garment, so that with their bare legs and heavily bearded faces, they looked not unlike reincarnations of two prehistoric progenitors of the human race. theron acted like one. Nearly two months of this existence had passed when the first great calamity befell them. It was prefaced by an adventure which came near terminating abruptly the suffering of two of them, terminating them in the grim and horrible manner of the jungle." forever. Thurin, down with an attack of jungle fever, lay in the shelter among the branches of their tree of refuge. Clayton had been into the jungle a few hundred yards in search of food. As he returned, Jane Porter walked to meet him. Behind the man, cunning and crafty, crept an old and mangy lion. For three days his ancient thews and sinews had proved insufficient for the task of providing his cavernous belly with meat." For months he had eaten less and less frequently, and farther and farther had he roamed from his accustomed haunts in search of easier prey. At last he had found nature's weakest and most defenseless creature. In a moment more, Numa would dine. Clayton, all unconscious of the lurking death behind him, strode out into the open toward Jane. He had reached her side, a hundred feet from the tangled edge of the jungle, when, past his shoulder, the girl saw the tawny head and the wicked yellow eyes as the grasses parted, and the huge beast, nose to ground, stepped softly into view. So frozen with terror was she that she could utter no sound, but the fixed and terrified gaze of her fear-widened eyes spoke as plainly to Clayton as words. A quick glance behind him revealed the hopelessness of their situation— The lion was scarcely thirty paces from them, and they were equally far from the shelter. The man was armed with a stout stick, as efficacious against a hungry lion, he realized, as a toy pop-gun charged with a tethered cork. Numa, ravenous with hunger, had long since learned the futility of roaring and moaning as he searched for prey, but now that it was as surely his, as though he already had felt the soft flesh beneath his still mighty paw... He opened his huge jaws and gave vent to his long-pent rage in a series of deafening roars that made the air tremble. "'Run, Jane!' cried Clayton. "'Quick, run for the shelter!' But her paralyzed muscles refused to respond, and she stood mute and rigid, staring with ghastly countenance at the living death creeping toward them. Thurin, at the sound of that awful roar, had come to the opening of the shelter, and as he saw the tableau below him, he hopped up and down, shrieking to them in Russian. "'Run! Run!' he cried. "'Run, or I should be left all alone in this horrible place!' And then he broke down and commenced to weep. For a moment this new voice distracted the attention of the lion, who halted to cast an inquiring glance in the direction of the tree. Clayton could endure the strain no longer. Turning his back upon the beast, he buried his head in his arms and waited. The girl looked at him in horror. Why did he not do something? If he must die, why not die like a man, bravely, beating at that terrible face with his puny stick no matter how futile it might be? Would Tarzan of the apes have done thus? Would he not at least have gone down to his death, fighting heroically to the last? Now the lion was crouching for the spring that would end their two young lives beneath cruel, rending yellow fangs. Jane Porter sank to her knees in prayer closing her eyes to shut out the last hideous instant. Thuron, weak from fever, fainted. Seconds dragged into minutes, long minutes into an eternity, and yet the beast did not spring. Clayton was almost unconscious from the prolonged agony of fright. His knees trembled a moment more, and he would collapse. Jane Porter could endure it no longer. She opened her eyes. Could she be dreaming? William! "'She whispered. "'Look!' "'Clayton mastered himself sufficiently "'to raise his head and turn toward the lion. "'An ejaculation of surprise burst from his lips. "'At their very feet the beast lay crumpled in death. "'A heavy war spear protruded from the tawny hide. "'It had entered the great back above the right shoulder "'and, passing entirely through the body, "'had pierced the savage heart. "'Jane Porter had risen to her feet,' As Clayton turned back to her, she staggered in weakness. He put out his arms to save her from falling, and then drew her close to him. Pressing her head against his shoulder, he stooped to kiss her in thanksgiving. Gently, the girl pushed him away. "'Please do not do that, William,' she said. "'I have lived a thousand years in the past brief moments. I have learned in the face of death how to live. I do not wish to hurt you more than is necessary.' "'but I can no longer bear to live out the impossible position I have attempted "'because of a false sense of loyalty to an impulsive promise I made you. "'The last few seconds of my life have taught me "'that it would be hideous to attempt further to deceive myself and you, "'or to entertain for an instant longer "'the possibility of ever becoming your wife, should we regain civilization.' "'Why, Jane,' he cried, "'what do you mean?' "'What has our providential rescue to do with altering your feelings toward me? "'You are but unstrung. "'Tomorrow you will be yourself again.' "'I am more nearly myself this minute than I have been for over a year,' she replied. "'The thing that has just happened has again forced to my memory "'the fact that the bravest man that ever lived honoured me with his love. "'Until it was too late, I did not realise that I returned it, "'and so I sent him away.' He is dead now, and I shall never marry. I certainly could not wed another less brave man than he without harbouring constantly a feeling of contempt for the relative cowardness of my husband. Do you understand me? Yes, he answered, with bowed head, his face mantling with a flush of shame. And it was the next day that the great calamity befell. And that does it for another episode of Another World Audiobooks. I cannot believe it. we're getting right on close to 200 episodes that we've done on the show. 200. I can't believe that. Uh, really trying to think up something cool, something fun, something special to do for episode 200. If you have any ideas, I'd love to hear from you. Anotherworldaudiobooks at gmail.com or if you go to anotherworldaudiobooks.com, then uh, you'll be able to see all the ways to get in touch, social media, etc., etc. Thank you guys for listening, and uh, remember to spread the word. Tell other people about the podcast. That is the best way to help us continue to exist <laughs> and continue to bring you awesome free audiobooks. So, and oh, I, I always forget to mention this, but if you go to AnotherWorldAudiobooks.com, there's actually a, a little form that you can fill out to get a free audiobook. So, if you want a free, full version of the audiobook, instead of getting it chopped up in the chapters like we do on the, the podcast here, go ahead and uh, do that. Go to AnotherWorldAudiobooks.com and click on Get a Free Audiobook, and I will happily send one your way so thank you guys so much for listening and sharing the show and we will talk to you next week This is Carl. Hi! Carl needs a website for his business. I sell the world's finest flavored toothpicks. But sadly for Carl, he doesn't know all the techie, complicated website stuff. So he's just out of luck, and his business is doomed to fail in this digital age of- Um, actually, I got my website set up super fast and easy with Invicta.Services. You- What? Yeah, it was super easy. I just picked the style I liked, made a few quick, simple customizations, and bam, awesome website where I can sell my flavored toothpicks. Well, that's... Amazing? I was going to say, probably expensive. Actually, getting a website with Invicta starts at only $24 per month. $24 per month? That's less than what I spend on vocal creams per month. It's awesome. It gets you website hosting, a beautiful, professionally designed, customizable template, ongoing site maintenance, regular WordPress plugin, and template updates. I don't say this often, but wow. I know, right? Invicta.services, the simple, affordable way to get a beautiful, professional website for your business. Just go to Invicta.services to launch your website today. That's Invicta, I-N-V-I-C-T-A.services. Invicta.services, a a professional website, headache-free. And just for Another World Audiobooks listeners, go to invicta.services and then enter the code ANOTHERWORLD to get your first month free. That's right. Go to invicta.services and enter Another World as your coupon code to get an entire month free and get started with your professional website at invicta.services.